That is our topic of discussion this morning, the idea of community and peace within the church of Jesus Christ, and it is based on the scripture reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to, uh, to grab one of the ones that, is, that are in the, uh, the chair racks, there are the blue volumes, or you can look at the screen behind me as I read, that's where the text will be displayed. If you're using the blue uh, chair rack Bibles, then 1 Thessalonians 5 is on page 1257. You can go directly there. Now we're going to spend a few more weeks closing out this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica. We've been here in this letter since the beginning of September. And in this last section of the letter, really chapters 4 and 5, Paul has been doing some explaining about how Christians are to live in light of the truth of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he has been asking and urging the Thessalonians uh, to act in accordance to, uh, to how they've been called, act in accordance with what God would tell them to do in the areas of sexuality, in the areas of work and career, in the areas of, uh, of death and the end of the world, all of, these, all of these areas. Now this week, Paul is asking us to consider what it means to live with one another in a, in a church community. So I'm going to read this out loud, but let me invite you to stand as I as I do that, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and I'm just reading verses 12, 13, 14, and 15. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, in the very center of what we just read of these four verses is the short uh, summary sentence, the topic sentence of this, of this text. You see the command there, be at peace among yourselves. That's the command. And that sounds like a very good thing. I mean, almost obvious. Who would, uh, who would think that the, you would want that command to say, be at war among yourselves? No one would say that. That's silly. Even the people who seem to like conflict wouldn't say something like that out loud. They would have enough emotional intelligence to not say something like that. So be at peace among yourselves. That sounds good. That's, that sounds... But we have a problem. Actually, we have multiple problems, right? These seeming contradictions in the world around us right now. And they're becoming major issues... Uh, that we need to address. And there's two sets, of, two sets of tensions here, right? The first tension is talking peace but doing war, right? Human beings, we like to talk about peace a lot, that we should not be in conflict. And at least in modern society, that, there seems to be some agreement that, uh, that peace is the right, uh, the right goal, that we should, we should do that. We should, seek, we should seek peace. But for all the talking about peace and all the seeming agreement about peace being a good goal, human beings do stubbornly uh, seem to be resistant to actually doing peace, right? We talk peace, but we do war. That's the first tension. Now, second tension, talking community, but doing isolation, right? We are made for community. We desire community. Every, everyone is built to be around other people. In fact, we talk about community all the time. More and more, you see it, right? We want to be a part of a community. We're, we're, we're a family, right? They, everyone wants to be a family, right? We talk community, but we do, we do isolation. Lots of data to support this. Over the last five years, 
multiple countries, uh, starting with the United Kingdom, uh, have now appointed a, uh, a minister in their government for loneliness. It was in, uh, a, about five years ago, Theresa May, the UK Prime Minister at the time, appointed a British government's minister of loneliness to combat the effects of loneliness. A few years ago, Japan did the exact same thing. Right? When he was appointed in Japan, the new minister of loneliness, uh, he said that his goal was to, quote, carry out activities to prevent social loneliness and isolation and to protect ties between people. Now, whether you think this deserves an entire uh, department of government uh, or not, it is an undeniable issue. I recently sat through a presentation um, about the trends, future trends in, in aging in the United States. And, and the number of solo agers, that's what they're called, the number of solo agers, older adults with no spouse, no children, no immediate family, and no real network of community around them, that population of solo agers is expected to skyrocket over the next 20 years. But it's not just, the effects are not just with older adults. A 2019 report, you can imagine it's even gotten worse since then, but a report uh, in Scientific American felt, uh, found that half of the U.S. population across all ages regularly felt alone, right? This, despite being the most supposedly connected uh, world we've ever lived in. And the, and the report cited research findings that prolonged isolation has been estimated to shorten one's lifespan by about 15 years, which is, in the, in the language of the report, equivalent in its impact to clinical obesity or smoking 15 cigarettes a day, right? Chronic loneliness. We talk a lot about community and family, but what we do is isolation. Those are the two tensions. We talk peace, but we do war. We talk community, but we do isolation. Now, I don't want to appear arrogant about this because I think as a Christian church, we often fail to resolve these tensions as well, right? We do. We fail, that is. In fact, the church can sometimes provide pretty, pretty unfortunate and clear historical examples of talking peace and doing war, of talking a lot about community, but really practically doing isolation. Maybe some of you have stories to tell about that. But here's the thing. The Christian church, at least, when it fails in those things, fails not because it doesn't have the right tools to be able to deal with it. The Christian church fails with all the right tools, which may be incredibly sad. It may be incredibly um, convicting. But it does mean that there is hope because in Christianity, we do have the tools to turn our talking about peace into doing peace and to turn our talking about community into doing community. And that's what we see that's what we see here. Paul wants us to be able to find this standard and power for being at peace amongst ourselves with those who are over us in authority and amongst one another. And that's what we see, right? How we do and why we love community. And the four verses that I read actually divide fairly nicely into two sections, right? About how to love one another in in peace. If you still have your Bibles open, look there. You can see in, in the text there. You can see how it fits into, um, into actually what is the preface for the, the whole section at the beginning of chapter 4. If you go, you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, it says, we, Paul says, we ask you and urge you to walk and to please God. Well, then you go to what we just read in chapter 5, verse 12, and what does it say? First thing, verse 12, we ask you. And then verse 14, what does it say? And we urge you. Right? He's just fitting into the same pattern, asking and urging. Two sections here, asking and urging. And in verse, verses 12 and 13, it's talking about asking and urging us to live in right relationship with our leaders. In other words, loving our leaders. And in verses 14 and 15, he's asking and he's urging how to 
exist and to, and to seek peace among one another. In other words, loving one another. So loving leaders and loving one another. Those are the two main sections of this text. Now, it's just a handful of verses, but there is a lot that's packed in here. So let's do a little Bible study. Let's, let's see what God has to teach us about these two areas in these two sections of these four verses. First, verses 12 and 13, right? Loving leaders. Now, let's just emphasize um, that we're talking here about how one loves and how one treats those in positions of formal leadership, or at least those with more spiritual maturity and more spiritual authority. Now, some people feel, some commentators, they come to this, uh, this text, and they feel that it's specifically talking about, about elders, a formal ordained position in the church, right? Our church is a church that is governed by a board of elders. Not all Christian churches are, but churches in our tradition are, and we think that there's good biblical support for, for doing it that way. And certainly, that might have been who Paul had in mind here. We know that Paul, whenever he went to start a new church, that he appointed men to be elders of that, of that church. Jewish synagogues of the day had elders that governed the, the synagogue. So there might be some real justification for thinking that Paul specifically had in mind formal, ordained leadership when he's talking here. But one way or the other, whether it was formal or informal, Paul is encouraging a certain posture, a certain behavior towards people who are in authority, in positions of leadership. Now, what is that, what is that posture? What is that posture to be? Well, well the, the, it, it's a posture, it's an attitude of respect and esteem. That's what the text says. Respect and esteem. Now, respect and esteem for what? Well, look, look what it says, verse 12. For their labor, the first thing it says, respect those who labor among you. Now, this could just be normal normal manual labor, right, that the leaders did to take care of themselves. We know that that was true for, for the Apostle Paul, for example. He made, he made tents in order to meet his expenses so that he wouldn't be a burden on the churches that he was serving. So respect them, the, those who labor among you. Could be talking about that. Or it could just be simply the labor of leadership, right, because leadership done well is absolutely exhausting. I've talked to, I, I talked to a number of people who, 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 are, who own their own businesses. And, and, and they regularly talk about the, um, the, the stress, the weight that they feel for their em, employees. People realize that, that everyone that they em, employ is using the paycheck that they sign in order to take care of their families every month. There's a burden of, of leadership just in a general sense. Now, specifically, Christian leadership involves um, it involves understanding the Bible, working to teach the, the Bible, correcting false teaching, helping with the needs of the people. Now that too can be exhausting. Last Saturday I was, um, I was at a meeting where a pastor who is moving into New Jersey to do college ministry at Rowan University uh, was being examined for his transfer exam. Um, and, and he was asked what has been for him one of the hardest parts of, of being a, a pastor. And he shared about a certain situation where he had spent months and months trying to help someone who was significantly struggling in a number of ways, in many, many areas, right? Lots of advice was given. Lots of help was, was offered and help was, was given. But this person ultimately refused to listen, right? Refused to receive the help that was being offered. And the consequences ended up being tragic. They ended up being heartbreaking. Right? That's the labor of leadership. That sometimes happens. Paul says, respect those who labor among you. That's the first thing. Now, second thing, respect those who are over you. In other words, it's not just the respect someone earns as a result of their work. 
It's a respect that's just, that, becomes be, that, that, that results because of a person's position, because, they, because of the position they hold, right? Think of the military. In the military, the salute is initiated by the lower-ranking person to the higher-ranking person. And then the higher-ranking person returns the salute, but the lower-ranking person is the one who initiates the salute. And the lower-ranking person doesn't need to know anything about the higher-ranking person. Doesn't need to know their name, doesn't need to know their background, doesn't need to know what things they've done in the last week. All they need to know is that this is a person of a higher rank, and so they salute. And here Paul is specifically saying that people should respect those who are over you. Now, very importantly, very importantly, he says respect those over you, what? In the Lord. Which, of course, puts a limit on the power of any spiritual leader. Because no person in spiritual authority is himself, himself not under authority. All authority is delegated authority. All authority is held in check by the one who ultimately grants it. In other words, anyone in any position of authority is ultimately answerable to the Lord. So respect those over you in the Lord. Now, also respect and admonish those who are over you because they admonish you. This is what, look, this is what it says in verse 12. Right? If you don't believe me, I ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you. Okay, got that. Who are over you in the Lord. Check, got that. And admonish you. Now, wait a minute. What does that mean? Right, let's slow down. Before we get too bothered by this, understand what the word admonish means. Kids, this is your free vocabulary word of the day. Ready? Admonish. It's not even a school day. and You get a free vocabulary word. What does admonish mean? Hmm? All right, here's a good definition. To teach someone about something by correcting and warning them, right? Admonish, to teach someone, right? By correcting and warning them, right? Let's use it in a sentence. The teacher admonished the student for being late to class again, right? Correction, warning, instruction, right? That's what it means. And everyone else says, okay, that's what I thought it meant and I'm still bothered by it, right? What do you mean? People are gonna admonish me, leaders, going to correct me because who likes someone who points out their faults, right? Or, leave me alone, right? I'm good with you leading if I get to choose whether to follow or not. But as soon as the leader turns around and says, hey, I think we should do it this way. I think you might be, I, I, think, I think you might need to think about it a little bit differently. That's when, that's when we get bothered by it. It's uncomfortable. It's not always fun. But if you think about it, it is absolutely necessary. No good teacher leaves a wrong answer uncorrected. No good coach ignores sloppy technique from their players. No good parent really loves a young child by tolerating destructive behavior. No spiritual leader ignores obvious sin in a person's life if they rightly understand the full negative effects of that sin. And that's really what proper admonishing looks like. It's not intended to be harsh. It's not intended to actually be punitive or to embarrass. The goal is, is gentle restoration, to bring someone back to a right course because true love doesn't ignore the problems a person can't see for themselves. And remember what we said, no leader who is doing the admonishing is above admonishing him or herself. They too are under authority. So there is an aspect in which this is mutual. But the point is, true love takes the risk of being misunderstood, even potentially of hurting a relationship in order to love another person, even if that means pointing out areas of struggle to which that person might at the moment be unable to see. 
All right, so that's point number one, right? Loving your leaders, respecting and esteeming your leaders because of their work, because of their position, and because of their admonishment. Now, point number two, loving one another. The second thing that Paul asks and urges for the people to not just love their leaders, but to love one another, right? Now, this could be, this actually could be what's laid out in verses 14 and 15 here. This could be a playbook for leaders. Okay, leaders, now this is how, right, verses 12 and 13, uh, people who are under authority, this is how you respect those who are leaders. You could look at verses 14 and 15 and say, okay, leaders, this is how to treat those who are under your authority. And and it wouldn't be wrong. I actually, we actually looked at this text with our elders at our last meeting. I think it's a fair application. What Paul is is saying here in verses 14 and 15, it's a good blueprint for how elders should treat those under their care. But it's really, it really is an urging for everyone. Paul says, we urge you brothers. And Paul uses that term brothers in a lot in this letter. And he uses it not just to refer to a couple of ordained elders, he uses it to refer to the entirety of the Christian community, to men and to women, brothers and sisters. It's an all-inclusive term. He's really talking to everyone here. He's really urging here, not just the behavior that is applicable to a few elders to practice, though it would be applicable to the elders, but he's really advocating something that is true for every member of the, of the church. Now, what's he urging? Well, there's a list of things here, here too. Look at your Bibles. Look at verses 14 and 15. What should we be doing to love one another? What's Paul urging? Well, first thing he says is admonish the idol. Here's that admonish word again, right? But everyone gets to get in on the action here, right? Not just the leaders, right? Admonish those who are idle. Now, this could be referring, who are the idle? This could be referring to people who were simply not working, right? Even though they were capable of working. Because earlier in chapter four, the reason why we, it could just be those who were just, they, they, they were just not working. They could work, they weren't working, they were lazy. Right? Earlier in chapter 4, and then also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this comes up as a problem in Thessalonica. Able-bodied people who just wanted to enjoy life without working. Right? That was a real issue. Not like that's an issue today, is it? 2.2 million, 2. 2 million views on Twitter, or X now. Uh, a video rant of a young woman uh, who says this. She's talking to a camera sitting in her car. Um, like, we never ask to be born, but we're obligated to do labor until we die? Huh? Like, someone tell me that's fair. Right? Like, is it lazy for me to just want to enjoy life? Like, why do I have to work? Why? 2.2 million views, right? People loved it, right? Now, it's really easy to kind of mock that question, why do we need to work? But it's actually a very valid question. It's a question that needs answering, right? I actually, the earlier in chapter 4, you go back a couple of weeks, you can look at, look at when we studied that, verses 9, 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 4, Paul addresses that. Why do we need to work? Suffice to say, Paul thinks that kind of attitude is something that we ought to admonish in one another. Those who are able to work but just simply don't feel like they really need to or or should. Now, the thing is, though, this idea of idleness, it could be more than just laziness that Paul is encouraging us to admonish in one another. The Greek word for idle here, it means something more than, than just lazy. It actually means undisciplined, insubordinate, unruly. Uh, someone who's, who's not living in a well-ordered way, disruptive and disorderly, like a soldier who steps out of line, steps out of formation. Now, why is that bad? Well, it's not that uniqueness and creativity of every human being is something to be squashed. We all are all made uniquely. 
But what Paul is talking about here in, in this idea of community is that there is a safety that comes from maintaining ranks with your fellow Christians, right? Maintaining ranks within the, the lines of, of soldiers, right? We see this in God's created world. An antelope feeding with his head down is completely vulnerable to a stalking leopard. But when that antelope is within a herd, they take turns eating, watching, eating, watching. They protect one another. Step out of line, go off by yourself, and you're in danger. Become idle in that sense of, 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 of being unruly, being undisciplined. Right? Bison herds do the same, the same thing. Bison, buffalo, right? They do the same thing. Right? To protect the weak, they form a ring of horns from predators, for keeping the most vulnerable on the inside. Step outside of the herd and you're in danger. With the herd, there is safety. This is what Paul is saying. Admonish those who, who are mistakenly who mistakenly think that they would be safer and better off outside of the context of community. Now, that, that also that leads then to the second kind of thing, particularly when you think about the herds protecting the weak, because the second thing that Paul says that we ought to do is to encourage the faint-hearted and, faint-hearted and protect the weak. And the next two things that Paul, Paul urges, encourage those who are discouraged encourage the, the, the faint-hearted. Now, they could have been discouraged because of persecution, because people were attacking them because they were Christians. They could have been discouraged because they were, uh, they were grieving over the loss of people who had died. We know that that was an issue. There were people who had died in their midst and they had questions about what was happening. Maybe that's why they were faint-hearted. Maybe they're anxious. They don't have a confidence about the, the future. Paul says, these are the faint-hearted. And what ought you to do to the faint-hearted among you? Encourage them. And help the weak. Now, maybe the weak is just another way of saying faint-hearted, right? Spiritually weak. But it probably also refers to those who are physically weak. The young, the old, the, the handicapped. Now, it's hard sitting in our cultural moment now in the 21st century in the West to realize how radical this is to say you should care for the weak. It's a pretty radical notion in the ancient world. We're so accustomed to living in a world of hospitals and nursing homes and social welfare that we take it for granted and assume that this impulse to care for those who are the weakest always existed. But for the most part, these things that Paul is urging were foreign concepts in the ancient world, absolutely foreign, where the weak were a drain on society, where, the, where, the, where, where they were most of the time just simply to be eliminated or, or neglected. Now, sadly, we do see that trend in our own world as well, don't we? Right? The, the urging is becoming more and more needed in, in our world where we're beginning to think that it's more loving, more cost-effective, don't forget cost-effective, right? to eliminate the faint-hearted, <laughs> to eliminate the weak rather than to encourage and to, and to help them. Uh, back in an interview in 2019, Stanley Hauerwas, who is a professor emeritus now at Duke Divinity School, regarded as one of the most um, observant public intellectuals of the last generation. Back in 2019 interview, he, he noted this disturbing trend toward eliminating the weak. He said it was very disconcerting as an old person. <laughs> um, but he said this, he said, I'd say in 100 years, if Christians are people who are identified as those who do not kill their children or their elderly, we would have been doing something right. That's a big deal. 100 years, it need to be now. But it's a fascinating com comment. If Christians are people identified as those who do not kill their children or their elderly, we would have been doing something right. That's what Paul is urging. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. 
Now, next thing on the list, look at back at verse 14. Be patient with them all. Patient for everyone. Patience. That's what Paul's urging, right? The all is probably, probably most explicitly referring to all of those in the church. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be patient with everyone. There's other texts that help us understand that we ought to treat everyone we encounter, and it's not excluding that. Patience isn't just for Christians, but Paul is saying amongst one another, to live at peace with one another, to love one another well, seek patience with one another. That means, that means presuming, presuming graciously what someone else is saying before you jump to conclusions. Right? It means asking questions that are curious before you make assertions that are critical. Right? Be patient. Now, last thing on the list is verse 15. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seeks to do good to one another and to everyone. In other words, do good rather than evil, which again is one of those things that sounds rather obvious. doesn't sound very controversial, but actually it can be very controversial. Right? Because the urging to do good rather than evil applies even when it appears that evil would be a, at least, if not appropriate, a desirable payment for evil done to you. That becomes really hard to, uh, to obey sometimes, to love even in the face of, of evil. Does that mean, one might ask, does that mean that if someone commits a crime against you, that you should just, just drop the charges, just forget about it? This is a question I've, I've talked about a lot with, with people for the last, over the last couple of weeks. Right, right here in our local community, in Wall Township, right, the, the heartbreaking tragedy of a young woman who was killed a couple weeks ago by a stray bullet in Nashville, a college student. I have a niece who's a student at Belmont University. I saw her the other day home for Thanksgiving. This family had a student at Belmont University who did not come home for Thanksgiving this year. Absolute tragedy. And I've had the opportunity to talk with a number of people in the last few weeks about this question. What's the right attitude towards the man who committed this act? the right attitude towards the flawed criminal justice system that allowed this man to be on the streets in the first place. And here's what I've said. At no point is the Christian called to not pursue love. Right? You can't, you can't, you can't negotiate around that. The Christian is called to love in any and all circumstances. Right? But loving someone does not mean ignoring or allowing them to ignore the consequences of their actions. In fact, right, and this gets back to our point about loving admonishment, what admonishment really is all about, the most loving thing that you can do for that person and for the community at large is to pursue justice when a wrong is committed. The issue becomes one of our hearts, the, the, the question of motivation, right? Christians pursue justice as an act of love. It is. It's not an act of hate. Because correction and discipline are intended for the wrongdoer's ultimate good. There's a sign if you drive around town uh, that uh, says, um, you know, love everyone, no exceptions. Now, I haven't talked to anyone who put that sign up. I don't know exactly what they, I, I can't, I don't want to presume exactly what they meant by it, right? But there's a whole lot of questions that you need to ask. What do you mean by that? How do you love some people in some situations? See, we pursue justice because our love for our neighbor around us compels us to take reasonable steps to protect someone from harm that may happen to them, right? Removing someone from, 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 from the community is a protection, a way to love those who are in the community. Ultimately, removing someone or pursuing justice for someone who has committed a criminal action, 
right, is an act of love towards the wrongdoer. Like, think about this. If I am prone to hurt someone, right, if I have an inclination to hurt people, the most loving thing that you can do towards me is to prevent me from doing that which is ultimately harmful to me. Pursuing sinful action and harming another person. Whether I realize it or not, right? So that's what we have. That's what we have in this passage. The asking and the urging. To love our leaders and to love one another. Now, all of that said, we have a problem. We have tensions that we still have to resolve because we know that there are our goals, right? Peace, not war. Community, not isolation. But we need to step back and ask, what's, what is it that we're missing? We have the command to pursue peace. We have the command to, to pursue community. But we don't have the power to do both, and that's point number three. That's what we need. Here's the problem, right? We try to do peace. We try to do community. We try to do them without Jesus. We pursue peace, but we fail because we pursue peace as an end in itself, as if peace was the ultimate thing we ought to be seeking, right? What we need to do is we need to pursue Jesus first, and then we'll get peace, right? If you seek peace first without Jesus, you'll end up getting neither of them. If you seek Jesus first, you'll end up getting both. Same thing for community, right? If you just seek community for the sake of community, you'll never really find it. But if you seek a relationship with Jesus, you will find true community because you'll realize that you will pursue Jesus better when you're with other people. Seek community by itself without Jesus and you'll get neither. Seek Jesus first and you'll get both. Only Jesus can provide it and he has. Jesus perfectly obeys every one of these askings and urgings here that Paul is talking about. Right? Paul urges Christians to submit. Right? We have the ultimate example to that. Right? Not from a position of inferiority, but Jesus himself submitting to the will of his heavenly Father in accomplishing his mission, a mission that ultimately led him to die on the cross, to take the punishment for our sin. Right? Jesus is also the ultimate example of a call to awaken us from our idleness, waking us from our from our comfort and our sleep. He's the ultimate encourager of the faint-hearted. Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? Jesus is the ultimate protector of the weak. Remember, he didn't die for those who were spiritually strong. Right? He died for those who are weak. Romans 5, 6, Paul says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And that's where we need to start. That's where we need to go back to. If we are to properly understand how to relate to those who are in authority over us, to those who are all around us, we need to, if we want to really live at peace and to love one another, we need to realize that we are incapable of rescuing and saving ourselves, that we need Jesus to do that. Back in 2019 as well, there's a lot of things that happened in 2019, but back in 2019, a video camera um, was recording from a vehicle on a road in uh, Vietnam uh, of uh, two motor scooters. One motor scooter had a mother and a child riding on this motor scooter. Now, it's easy to be critical of having a child on a motor scooter on a busy road, but in many parts of the world, there's few other options for, for travel. Well, what happened was this motor scooter suddenly gets clipped by a car sending it skidding sideways where the mother and the child topple off of the mother uh, off of the the scooter into the path of an oncoming truck and in a fraction of a second you need to slow it down to really see what happened but in the fraction of a second the mother grabs the child 
as they're rolling down the road and yanks him out of the way of the oncoming tire, saving his life. Do you know what that word in verse 14 literally means when it says help the weak? It means to lay hold of, to grasp tightly without letting go. In other words, helping the weak, what Jesus did for us, is not the image of a mother leisurely holding a young child's hand and skipping across the street. Help the weak to lay hold of is the image of a mother reaching out and grabbing the child as the oncoming truck is bearing down, tightly and not letting go, and pulling that child to safety. That's what Jesus did for you. That's what gives us the power to love one another, to help the weak, because that was us, the weak, who have been laid hold of and pulled to safety. That's how we love one another and love our leaders, only when we first see ourselves as the recipient of that kind of love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us in that way, for grabbing hold of us when we were in desperate need, for pulling us to safety. And Lord, we pray that that would power us to be able to love one another well, to seek to know you better through submission to those who are in authority over us, through sacrificial love towards one another. Lord, thank you for the goodness that you have shown to us and the opportunity that we have to show that to one another. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.